Leslie Flynn wrote a book in the late 70s called Great Church Fights. Well, the titles of the book, if uh, you could write about anything, this is what Leslie Flynn wrote about. And he quotes a story from a Welsh newspaper where a Welsh church was looking for a new minister. Now, there was some discussion about who would be the new minister. In fact, there was some, it was more than discussion, there was some conflict. And it would seem that there were two sides in this conflict. And one side had their choice, and the other side had their choice. And this is what was published in the newspaper. It said, yesterday both opposition groups sent both their choice to the pulpit. Both preacher preached simultaneously. Each tried to shout above the other. At the end of the sermon, both called for hymns, each side trying to drown out the other. At the conclusion of the service, the groups began shouting at each other. The Sunday morning service turned to bedlam. Eventually, the police were called and they began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. It's comical. Uh, you can imagine um, John Cleese turning it into a parody of what goes on in church, but it's no parody. It actually happened. And it does happen in church. There's conflicts within churches. There's conflicts within people within churches. What we hear in a book like Great Church Fights is all too true. And what it reminds us this morning is that the greatest danger to the church is always from within. And it's always been that way. Theologian Karl Barth writes this, he says, There are not there sorry, there are letters, there are not letters of the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. What Barth means by that is that there's a substantial amount of Paul's letters that are written to churches because there are problems. Indeed, there are conflicts within the church. Much of Paul's letters exist because of this. And this letter that we're reading this morning, this prison letter of Paul, is written when there is danger outside the church. The dangers outside the church were immense. Uh, Paul's mentioned some of those external pressures in chapter 1, verse 27. But it's not the external dangers here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that Paul is concerned about. He's concerned about the dangers from within. Paul knows that it's going to be tough against these external pressures. And he knows that these this church are to live not as citizens of this earth, but as citizens of heaven. And they must not only be united against a common foe, against what's outside the church, they must be united from within. They must be united in heart and mind. They must be united in the way in which they see the priority of the gospel and how that reality is lived out. Their regard to one another, their kindness to one another, their love for one another. 
And so Paul starts is if you want to open up to chapter 2 there in the book of Philippians with this encouragement. And he wants to kind of take those that he writes to this church, he wants to take them back with these statements, if, 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 then. Verses 1 to 4 is a single sentence, and it's this passionate appeal from the apostle for mutual care and unity. And Paul really starts with the heart here. It's, it's an appeal to the emotions. You'll see as we work through this that it's from their heart that Paul is speaking to, from his heart that he speaks to their heart. And it's a fourfold reminder of really what happened to them when they became Christians. He wants them to recall what occurred. And so you see there that there are four encouragements there. So chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Paul takes them back to the very moment that they first put their trust in the Lord Jesus. There was this sense, he imagines in them, of spiritual comfort. And perhaps we can recall that. Perhaps we can recall the moment um, if we were older when we came to Christ, where we trusted in him and we knew that consolation. We knew that comfort that came to us. A deep comfort that strengthened us. And it's a deep comfort that comes from knowing that we have, as Paul expresses it here, been, been united with Christ. Because you are united with Christ. That means all your sins are forgiven. That you have been declared righteous. And that righteousness now is yours. The righteousness that Christ had, because you are united with him, is now ours. Which means we can be strengthened by the knowledge that we will never be condemned for our sin. Because we've been united with Christ and we've been united with his righteousness. And that we can delight in God because he now delights in us. Therefore, you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. That's his first reminder. His second reminder is this, if you have any comfort from his love. Here it's a reference to the experience of God's love. Not just the idea that, yes, yeah, God loves us, we hear that a lot, but to the experience of God's love, of Christ's love. When they first came to faith, when Paul met those women, those women, as we saw back in Acts chapter 16, when they first came to trust in Jesus, Paul wants to take them back to the love that they encountered. Yes, it was eternal security, but it was the love of God that made an impact with them. The love of God that will not let them go. And I think every child of God has to know, has to know that they are loved. They are loved by a father and that there is great comfort from this. Could we receive any more comfort than knowing that God loves us? His love, as the Psalms, Psalm reminds us, satisfies the longing of our soul, heals the broken heart. And it breaks the chains of our hearts. 
have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you're joined with him, if you have any comfort from his love, the third recollection is if you have ever any common sharing in the spirit. That sharing there in verse 1 is the fellowship word that we encountered back in chapter 1. And here it's a fellowship in the spirit. And it's a deep connection of relationship that's really at the heart of this book. Paul's relationship with this church that he's writing to is intimate because their relationship with God is intimate in the gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul talks about the fellowship of the gospel. They encountered this group of people that were brought together and now they have this bond. And here, it's not just a bond with one another, it's a bond, a fellowship, a partnership with the Holy Spirit. This fellowship of the Holy Spirit is what we say when we say the grace. And this is an enduring reality. The Holy Spirit mediates God's tenderness. The Holy Spirit brings the reality of God's compassion to us. And the Holy Spirit is ministering to us every hour of every day to bring this reality. Now often we ignore it. We deny it. We fail to take advantage of the grace that God has given us in his spirit. But it's his tenderness and his kindness that is at work through his spirit that leads us to repentance. And God's compassion frees us from our own weakness. And God will do that again and again to our stubborn hearts, our minds that are so bent on refusing to accept what God has given us. If you have any sharing in his spirit, if you have any comfort from his love, the fourth recollection is if you have any tenderness and compassion, sympathy and mercy is what Paul is talking about here. Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I think what Jesus means there and what the Apostle has in mind here is that a merciful heart is a sign of having received mercy. If you have received the mercy of God, if you've truly received the mercy of God, that starts to change the way in which you relate not only to yourself, but to others. And so Paul takes these Christians that he's writing to back. He takes them and he wants to compel them. And I think he wants to compel them emotionally, taking them back to their salvation, activating their experience of when they first came to faith, of when he preached the gospel to them. And they experienced the wonders and the comfort and the consolation and the strength and the encouragement and the blessing. He's taking them back. He's taking them back that they might hear of the unity of the church. In fact, it's vital that if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, that we experience this gospel in our own lives. Paul says there in verse 2, that there is, there is something lacking in his joy. He says there, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being one in spirit and one of mind. The phrase being like-minded and being one of mind has this sense of one goal. That this collection of people from different backgrounds, perhaps with different agendas, Paul is hoping that his joy might be complete by all their differences coming under the one reality, the one purpose, the one mind. And what is that? Well, that's the gospel. Paul's mentioned that five times in this book already. And the fifth mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel controls everything that he's saying here. Here, this church are being called to orientate themselves around the gospel. And if they orientate themselves around the gospel, that's just not an idea of you know, theological orthodoxy. It is, but it's more than that. Orientating themselves around the gospel is related to how they, how they relate to one another. Being gospel-focused is not just evangelism, it's, it's not less than that, but it's, not, it, it's, it's, more than, it's more than that. It's here in Paul's mind, the supernatural experience of the gospel in their own lives. The unity that Paul has in mind here is not simply a vacuous togetherness. It's not that this church, or indeed any church, has people simply with similar interests that happen to be you know, spiritual in nature. No, the unity that he is speaking about here is infused with a purpose. And it's a dynamic purpose that's important. If we are to take what Paul is saying seriously here, then the gospel must be the centre of everything. Not just in name or aspiration, but in reality. And as Paul is in jails, he's in perhaps in quite a miserable circumstance. He's joyous, but there is something missing from his joy. His joy will be complete when this small group have the one focus, regardless of their backgrounds, their personalities, their history. He wants them to have the one focus. He wants them to orientate themselves together around this one gospel. And this is what Paul would have us do too. He's asking us as a church to unite around that one reality of the gospel, not just in name. Yes, of course, we want to be gospel-focused. We want the priority of the gospel. It's easy to say that. But what does the priority of the gospel look like in Paul's mind? It looks like a call to serve one another in humility. And this is where we need the supernatural power of the Spirit, the resurrection power of the Spirit. Because loving with Christ's love, others, well, sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that is difficult. And sometimes it's seemingly impossible. But this is what God is calling us to do. To love one another 
to have the gospel at the centre of our lives and for that to be expressed in the way that we relate to one another. What does this look like? What will happen if we focus on the gospel? Well, verses 3 and 4 tell us. Firstly, um, Paul starts off with telling us not what to do. It's a negative statement there in, at the start of verse 3. Have a look there in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, rather in humility. Value others above yourself. Here, Paul is pretty honest about the nature of the human heart. He's speaking to a church and he's calling for unity and he's wanting them to be focused on the gospel, but he knows the reality of the human heart, that there is selfish ambition in everyone's heart and vain conceit. Uh, selfish ambition sometimes is translated there as rivalry. This has always been part of how humans function. In the secular Greek world, the word humility was rarely used. In fact, the word that's used here for humility there in verse 3 would have been used in a derogatory way. Servile weakness, shameful lowliness. But here the Apostle Paul is recognising that there's conceit in Christians' hearts and the alternative or the response to that is rather humility. The kind of humility that sees others above yourself. Pride and self-importance might get your head in the world, but in the church it's an abomination. That lowliness which was utterly despised by Greek culture that word lowliness of humility was utterly despised by Greek culture. And it's also despised today. But for the people of God, it's the highest virtue. Humility here is not groveling or a lack of self-esteem. But here humility is part of a, of a moral integrity. It's part of a recognition of who we are before God. Our humility is not a comment on our worth as people. But the Apostle Paul knows that he's loved. He knows that God has loved him and has died for him. And so here as he wants this church to humble themselves around the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done in the gospel, he's wanting them to entrust themselves to God. He's wanting them to entrust themselves not, not to themselves, but to God. Um, Blaise Pascal says, he's a, a, a polymath, he says this, he says, what amazes me the most is that everyone is not amazed at their weakness. Um, many of us are very smart, cluey, experienced, knowledgeable kind of people in all kinds of ways. And what we do is um, we often apply uh, some of our experience, our knowledge, our insight, we apply it to other people. We observe their faults and failures. And we actually develop it quite well. We develop quite um, fine, calibrated ability to detect 
the sin, the weakness and the problems of others. What Blaise Pascal is saying, and what the Apostle Paul is, I think, encouraging us to do is, perhaps what if we were to focus some of that fine-tuning that's always looking at others and their deficiency and what they're doing wrong, what if we were to focus some of that back onto ourselves? What would we see? Well, we'd see weakness. In fact, we'd see more than weakness. We'd certainly see weakness. We'd see sin. And we'd see evil, ugly hearts that have thoughts and inclinations that we'd be embarrassed to share at a polite company like church this morning. But the Apostle Paul isn't embarrassed. He's not polite. He's saying vain conceit, rivalry. It's a part of the normal Christian heart. And we must be realistic about that. And we must, in fact, fight against it. And we must fight against it through humility. Finally, Paul concludes this section in verse 4 by saying, Humility comes from not looking at our own interests, but the interests of others. And this is what good parents do. Good parents look not to themselves, but they look to their children, primarily. And just the way in which a good parent would look at a child and go, okay, I'm not going to go out and do what I want to do, because I want to foster the well-being and care of my child. That similar mindset Paul is encouraging here that we're not to look to our own interests, but we're to look to the interests of others. A healthy church survives in a hostile culture by expressing its humility, by, by those within the church expressing humility to one another. Not greatness, not giftedness, not knowledge, not expertise, but by humility. A conductor of an orchestra was asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? His answer was, the second violin. Everyone wants to be the first violin. I don't know much about orchestras, but first violin, everyone wants to be it. Not many people aspire to be second violinist. Paul is encouraging those within the church he's writing to, he's encouraging us within our church for our greatness. The thing that, wouldn't it be great, the thing that we were known for as a church within our community was the way in which we related to one another in humility. Wouldn't that be a wonderful, wonderful experience of church life? And wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony to the power of the gospel in our lives? When we sit in the shadow of the cross, we learn that there is nothing beneath us. There's nothing beneath us in service. I know many of us would be willing to do things that, you know, many of us serve wholeheartedly and we're quite willing to, you know, get dirty around church and we'll get our hands dirty. You know, if I asked any of you to clean the toilet, I'm sure many of you would be willing to do that. 
But that kind of attitude, Paul is asking us to get dirty as we relate to one another, to give up our pride. It's easy to clean the toilet like that. But we're to get dirty in the relationships that we have and in what we're willing to give up. Our sense of importance, our need to be right, our need to be seen and known. We're to give that up for the sake of others. If we want to learn humility, our pride needs to be crushed. It needs to be crushed by the reality of the gospel that we have sinned and Jesus has forgiven us. And when we see God for who he is, then we see ourselves as we ought to see them. We ought to treasure the forgiveness that we have in Christ because that will humble us. And we ought to look, as we will next week, at Christ's humility. Humility. Christ took upon himself human flesh, a nature that was shrouded, shrouded his true glory. In his humility, he obeyed the law that he himself had given. In his humility, he suffered ridicule, rejection, beatings, crucifixion at the hands of men that he had made. In his humility, he tasted the curse of death, a curse pronounced against sinfulness. In his humility, he quietly suffered the wrath of God against sin that belongs to others, that belongs to us. In his humility, he intercedes for those of us who believe in him. And in his humility, he will bring wretched, undeserving sins to share in his kingdom and in his glory. Amen. Please stand as we sing.